Well, let me invite you to remain standing out of reverence for God's powerful and perfect Word and grab your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible, it will be useful uh, to have one open and in front of you as we study God's Word together. So you can grab one that should be in a chair back in front of you and turn to page 863 is where we're going to be uh, this morning. If you're a guest with us today, Since the end of November, our church has been walking through Luke's gospel, slowly but surely plodding our way through these great pictures of Jesus Christ. And today, for the first time in our study of Luke's gospel, we'll in many ways pick up the velocity a little bit as we want to look at the first 35 verses of chapter 7. We went through Jesus' great sermon on the plain in chapter 6 as something through like a school zone pace, and it's like now we're getting ready to get on the highway of understanding the truth about Jesus Christ, largely in order that we can arrive at Reverend Derek II's text at the end of chapter 7 for next Sunday. But I think we're going to see something of the perfect picture, again, of Jesus Christ and what he calls unto us. And so what I want to do to get us going is actually just read the last eight verses of our text, which is verse 28 through 35. And then I want to pray briefly, once again, for God to bless our study, and then we will begin together. So let us hear now as God speaks to us through his word. Jesus says, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized. By him. To what then shall I compare the people of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. John the Baptist has come eating no bread and drinking no wine, and you say to him, He has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking. And you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by all her children. And Redeemer Church, what do we know about God's word? The grass withers and the flowers fall. The word of the Lord stands forever. Let us pray together once again. Our Father, we bow before you now, granting that you are a God who is great and glorious, that your word is mighty and majestic, and we pray that you would send it forth in our midst even now that we might be brought to new faith in Jesus Christ, strengthened in our faith even in Jesus Christ. So help us to behold wondrous things from your word. Open our hearts even that we might keep it in faithfulness and obedience and walk in repentance where it is needed. So let us hear with hopefulness and eagerness for you to work among us together this morning. We pray that you unite unite us together in Jesus Christ and help me to preach as I ought with boldness and clarity as a dying man unto dying people. And let us hear the good news of Jesus Christ this morning as if this 
sermon might be the last one we hear. And we do pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, You may be seated. One of my favorite bands in my teenage years was this Christian ska band called the Orange County Supertones. They were something of a soundtrack to my life in my high school years. I often listened to it while doing homework. Tended to be the background noise as I was getting ready for school in the morning. Whenever they would roll through town here in North Texas, I would attend the concert if it was close enough for me to get to in time. So in so many ways, I was an audience member of the Supertones music catalog. But one summer, a teammate of mine, a soccer teammate of mine, his father knew the bassist of the Supertones, and so they were in town for this big old Christian music festival, and he had lined it up for us to basically be VIP uh, members to the Supertones tour that day. So we got to go backstage and on the tour bus and tried to help them set up their uh, set list, recommending songs that they never actually approved, but nonetheless, they listened to our recommendations, and we got to kind of rub elbows with the big Christian bands at the moment, as they were also, there were other headliners at this festival, and little did we know it at the time, even for just a few hours on one Saturday evening, we became part of the Supertones entourage. We moved from being just an audience member to following them around in the course of their day. And in a sense, as we come to chapter 7 in Luke's gospel, we move from being hearers, audience members of Jesus' great sermon on the plain in chapter 6, to now members of his entourage. As we follow him through his life and ministry, as it continues and hurdles ever forward unto his death on the cross. And the great question that our text has before us this morning is, will you follow Jesus Christ in faith? Will you receive Jesus for who he truly is? And what we're going to see, Lord willing, this week and next, is that there are four different scenes, four different stories in Luke chapter 7 And every single one of them centers on how people are responding to Jesus. Not just who he is, but how people are responding to the truth of who he is. Specifically, how people are receiving Jesus Christ or how they're rejecting uh, Jesus Christ. So kids, as we walk through this text this morning, I want you to give attention to what we find out about people who receive Jesus Christ. And you might even be in here this morning and are studying the truth of Christianity. Maybe you're seeking out uh, the claims of Jesus Christ, and you've come on a wonderful day because this text is going to show us, I think with great power, who he is and what he came to do. And it's reiterating to us something maybe you've seen already in Luke's gospel that is just all throughout the entire book. Jesus over and over is telling us that there are only two ways of living. There's no neutrality before God, he says. There's the way of sin, and there's the way of the Savior. We even saw in our text last week, he used these metaphors, which told us there's the way of the good tree that bears good fruit, or there's the way of the bad tree that bears bad fruit. There's the way of a life built on a sandy foundation, and there's the way of the life built on a strong foundation. And as we see people interacting with Jesus Christ and even land at the end of our text, we're going to see this dichotomy once again. 
people who have received John the Baptist and so have received Jesus Christ. And people who have rejected John the Baptist and so have rejected God's purpose for them in Jesus Christ. So if you want to think about the simple main theme of this text, it is that a humble faith is the right response to who Jesus is. A humble faith is the right response to who Jesus is. So we have three simple stories, and I just want to walk through them under three simple headings. First, in verses 1 through 11, we want to see what amazes Jesus. Then verse 11 through 17, what moves Jesus. And then verse 18 through 35, what displeases Jesus. So kids, you can even think of these as questions, maybe even useful to talk about with your parents or family members over lunch today. What is it exactly that amazes Jesus? What is it exactly that moves Jesus? And what is it exactly that displeases Jesus, according to our text? So the first scene, verses 1 through 10, tells us what amazes Jesus. If you glance down at verse 1, you'll see after Jesus has preached his great sermon in chapter 6, he has entered the city of Capernaum which is something like his home base in ministry. And if you ever ask any pastor or preacher, they'll tell you that it's ordinarily not long after the sermon before some sort of pastoral need arises that needs attention. And the same thing is happening in the life of Jesus Christ because he's gone back to his home base, and you'll see in verse 2 that very quickly he's made known or he's told about this need that comes with a centurion. Centurion is said to have this beloved servant who is at the point of death. So a centurion was a Roman, uh, an official in the Roman military who was in charge of about a hundred different soldiers. Centurions tended to be rich individuals, and often they would use their wealth to bless the community, backing civic projects or other things that were going on in the city, village, or town where they were lodging. And that seems to be the case for this particular centurion because he knows his beloved servant is sick, near the point of death, so he asks the Jewish elders to go to Jesus and ask Jesus to do something about his servant's sickness. And notice what the Jewish elders emphasize in verse 4 and 5 about this centurion. They came to Jesus and pled with him earnestly, saying, He's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he's the one who built us our synagogue. He's done all these wondrous things for the Jewish people, Jesus. Surely you're going to help him now. And Jesus goes and agrees to go see the centurion. And evidently, word has come back to the centurion that not only is Jesus on the way to his house, but why Jesus is on the way to the house. It's a rich individual who has blessed the Jewish community. And it's as though he hears that reason and he says, oh no, that's not right. That's not what I wanted to communicate. So he gets a group of his friends together and sends them to talk with Jesus and notice the message he wants to relay in verses 6 through 8. The friends come to Jesus as he's on the way to the centurion's house and say, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. 
So students, I want you to look at verse 4 and verse 6 again and see if you can find this play on words that's going on in Luke's account. Do you see it? Verse 4, the Jewish elders say, this man is worthy for you to heal his servant. And what does the centurion say in verse 6? I am not worthy for you to even come into my home. Something of the humility, even confidence in this centurion to say, just say the word and all will be well. Emily and I recently watched this recent blockbuster musical uh, together and even our kids seem to really enjoy it and one of the uh, rousing numbers has a main character declaring there's nothing that I'm not worthy of. And you see the centurion say something quite different, doesn't he? Yes, he's a person of authority. He's a person of means. He's a person of power. But Jesus, don't even cross the doorstep of my house. I'm not worthy for you to even come into my home. And he's showing us something here in this first story about the nature of faith. What a right response to the truth of who Jesus is looks like. It reminds us that faith begins with recognizing your unworthiness before Jesus Christ. Faith always must begin there. And I wonder if you've even given attention in your own life, if you just thought about God's blessings in your own life, His mercy towards you in Christ Jesus, and you've beheld the Lord lifted up high and glorious, and have you said, Lord, I am not worthy? Or maybe you know how personal esteem of worth, believing yourself to actually be worthy of those blessings found only in Christ, tends to always push away a knowledge of the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Understanding yourself to be worthy will always push away the worthiness of Christ. And here is the centurion saying, Lord, I am not worthy. Just say the word and it will happen. And so notice how this humble faith of the centurion affects Jesus. Look at verse 9. And when Jesus heard these things, He marveled at the centurion and turned to the crowd that was following him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Now kids, you need to know that only twice in all the New Testament is Jesus said to marvel at something. You can find it later today in Mark chapter 6. He marvels at the unbelief of Israel. Those who are the inside track, if you will, of salvation. And here in our text, he marvels at the belief of a Roman centurion, he who's on the outside track of salvation, even reminding us once again that this Messiah, this Savior came to save people from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of nations, all kinds of interests and perspectives. It's a humble faith, a humble, confident faith, that causes Jesus to marvel and be amazed. And then you'll notice, of course, in verse 10, that Jesus does say the word, and the servant is healed even at that very hour. So that is what amazes Jesus. And now in verses 11 through 17, we want to see what moves Jesus. So in his ministry, he's moving south, we're told, in verse 11, some 25 miles to the city of Nain. And notice what he sees before entering the city in verse 12. He drew near to the gate of the town... And behold, a man who had died was being carried out, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town 
was with her. So understand this picture that's before us. There's this cart carrying a coffin. There is this woman who has lost her son, only son. And we're also told that the woman is also a, a widow. And in the ancient world, this is the picture of poverty and destitution. Because without a husband and without any sons, she had no security, she had no safety, she had no protection, she had no provision. This is what it would have looked like to be utterly destitute in the ancient world, coming right towards Jesus. And maybe you even sit in here this morning and maybe stand on the precipice of poverty. Maybe you have recently experienced even great loss of a loved one, going through a season of suffering maybe great affliction, deep hurt. Do you know how Jesus feels towards you? Well, look at what we're told in verse 13. And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. You know, students, if someone was to come to you at school tomorrow and ask you, hey, I've heard before this name of, of Jesus. Uh, what's he like? I've heard you love Jesus and follow Jesus. Uh, what kind of a teacher or what kind of a savior is he? I wonder what kind of words you would use. What characteristics, what attributes you would use to describe who Jesus is. Maybe you would point to his love, his grace. Maybe you'd point to his authority. We've seen that over and over in Luke's gospel. His sovereignty, his power, his justice, his righteousness. How many of you would naturally begin to point to his compassion? You may have heard the name before of B.B. Warfield. He was a systematic theologian at Princeton Seminary in the late 1800s and early 1900s. So powerful was he in theology, he was known as the Lion of Princeton. He wrote this wonderful little work called The Emotional Life of Our Lord looking at the affections and the emotions of Jesus. And he said this in that little volume, the emotion which we should naturally expect to find most frequently attributed to Jesus is no doubt compassion. In point of fact, it is the emotion which is most frequently attributed to Jesus. I wonder if you have an understanding of Christ that finds compassion the most natural thing to say about Jesus. The most natural emotion to describe him as having. For over and over in the Gospels, he said to have compassion to those who are hurting, compassion to those who are lowly, compassion to those who are full of sin. So I wonder if there's someone in your life that you might encourage this week to remember that Christ is full of compassion. I wonder if there's even anyone that you're praying for that they might come to know his compassion for the very first time. So he is full of compassion, isn't he? But notice he is full of authority and power because look at what follows in verse 14. Jesus came up and touched the bier. That'd be like the cart on which the coffin was laid. And the bearers stood still and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak and Jesus gave him to his mother. And we need to see something here, not only about Jesus' authority over death, but you need to see something here about what indeed does separate Christianity from all other world religions. Because if you wanted to go to world religions class, you would find out that in virtually every single major religion, its major leader comments on the terror of death. 
while we proclaim a Savior who doesn't merely comment on the terror of death, he conquers it and has authority over it. To the dead son, he says, get up, rise up and walk, and he moves. New life comes into him. And I want you even to think about this wonderful scene as something of a portrait, uh, something of a picture of Christ's saving work. For do you know that the Bible says all of us have been born into sin, that the wages of sin is death? So therefore, from birth, we are, as it were, journeying through this life inside a spiritual casket on the way to eternal death and judgment. And then Jesus comes along and, and touches the casket, says, stop. Look upon me in order that you might live. And how we might live is only because we trust in what he has done. He lived the perfect life. He died in our place to pay sin's penalty. He rose again three days later to conquer sin's power. He now has risen up to heaven. So every single day that we come together on the Lord's Day, every single Sunday we gather, it's as though Jesus places his hand on our lives. And from heaven, through his word and spirit, he says, look upon me and live. Maybe you're even in here this morning dead in sins, and he is doing that even to you now in the fullness of his love and compassion. He is saying, turn from your sin and trust in me that you might know my conquering compassion over death. And this is what moves Jesus. And then you'll see as this scene closes in verse 16, 16 and 17, fear is gripping the crowds once again. They're amazed at this power of Jesus Christ, glorifying God. You even see in verse 16 that they declare a great prophet has arisen among us. And surely many of them would have had in their minds the background of 1 Kings chapter 17 where that great prophet Elijah in the Old Testament raised another son back to life. And here comes another prophet doing the very things that Elijah did so long ago. So what is it that amazes Jesus? He is a Lord amazed by the humble, confident faith of a centurion. What is it that pleases Jesus? He is a prophet that is full of compassion for hurting lowly sinners. What is it then thirdly in verses 18 through 35 that displeases Jesus? My mom, as grandmothers are often prone to do, loves to shower my children with gifts. And one of her recent presents to our kids was this series of DVDs put on by Voice of the Martyrs. I know some of you even have them. It's called Torchlighter Series. It kind of shares these great Christian biographies of, of wonderful individuals in church history past. And, and this week, our kids were, were enraptured by the story of, of John Bunyan. And maybe you've heard of the name of, of John Bunyan before. He was a Puritan tinker. That means he kind of fixed pots and pans to make a, a living. And he was a powerful preacher, so powerful that John Owen told the king even of England that I would give away all my learning if I could preach like John Bunyan. Well, from 1660 to 1672, Bunyan was in prison. Twelve years in prison because he was preaching without a license. He was holding unauthorized meetings. But it was a quite fruitful imprisonment, if I can say it that way, uh, for Bunyan. He always had this stream of family members and friends coming in to visit him. He wrote nine books over 12 years, including his long-lasting legacy, which is The Pilgrim's Progress. And so it was seemingly like a, a communal prison environment as he met with all of these people who followed his ministry. And as we turn to verse 18 of Luke 7, 
uh, what we see is John the Baptist show back up for the first time really since chapter 3. And he's in prison. We know from the rest of the story that he's in prison because he was speaking against King Herod's sexual immorality. But for John, we know he probably wasn't writing any books, but he had this stream of visitors that were coming into his prison cell telling him about what Jesus was doing. You see that in verse 18. The disciples of John were reporting all these things Jesus was doing to him. And so look what John does as a result in verse 19. He called two of his disciples and sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? I have to take a step back at that kind of a question. Who is asking it? John the Baptist. You can go home and reread it later on today. It'd be wonderful in terms of, I think, edification and meditation on the Lord's Day. But Luke 3, you find John preaching with all kinds of power. So much so he's stirred up the countryside into this kind of spiritual tizzy as he pronounces the coming of a Messiah. Yet here he is, however long later we don't exactly know, saying, well, Jesus, are you actually the one that I was preaching about? So we should ask the question, why is it that John seems to be doubting the identity of Jesus as the promised Messiah? Well, if you went back to chapter 3, what you would find is that there was a particular note in John's sermonic symphony, this kind of tone that underlined everything in his preaching, and it was the note of judgment. Do you remember these metaphors and and things that he would talk about in terms of the axe is laid to the root of the tree. The Savior's going to come, and the winnowing fork is in his hand. And he's going to overthrow all those people that stand against him. And yet, what is he hearing about Jesus doing? Preaching with authority. Healing people. Compassionate miracles extending to those in need. And John seems to be saying, well, where's all the judgment? So, as the ensuing text moves on, Jesus first answers John's doubt. Notice what he says in verse 22. He tells John's disciples, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. So he combines six different prophecies from Isaiah's book. He says, go back, almost, basically, and tell John to read Isaiah once again. <laughs> and he's going to see it. And I wonder even if you might be in here this morning, struggling with the truth of who Jesus is. Or maybe like John, struggling with unmet expectations of who you thought the Savior would be. Maybe you have someone in your life who is like that. Maybe you even see some encouragement from the model and example of Jesus Christ is to turn them back to the truth of Scripture. To know what Jesus has done. Why He has done it. Who He is. Maybe you're even in here this morning and you're struggling to truly understand who Jesus is because you have these preconceived notions about His person and work that don't seem to match up with what the Bible says He came to do and came to be. But He answers John's doubt. And then he begins to assure the crowd of John's place. Because it seems as though crowds are always following Jesus. They probably overheard this conversation with Jesus and John's disciples. And so maybe there was the danger that the crowds would begin to think less of John the Baptist because of his doubt. 
And so Jesus begins to encourage them. You'll notice if you scan your eyes through verse 24 through 27, he has this volley of rhetorical questions, reminding the crowds, why is it again that you went out to see John the Baptist preaching with power in the wilderness? He reminds them that, yes, indeed, John is that great forerunner of the Messiah. He's the prophet of old who came to prepare the way for the coming Savior. That is who John is. So great is John. Notice what he says in verse 28. I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet stunningly, doesn't he up the ante a little bit at the end of verse 28? Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than even John the Baptist. So what does Jesus mean? Well, he means that you sit here today on the side of redemptive history in which Jesus has died for your sin and rose again and ascended to the Father's right hand. You know about things that John never got to know about. Spiritually, with our mind of faith, we get to see things that John never got to see, that in the new covenant age in which we live, there is such a fullness of grace that someone who comes to Jesus Christ, Jesus says, is even greater than John the Baptist in the kingdom of heaven. So it's so true that someone in here, if not many of you in here this morning, may be struggling to understand, does God love me? Does he even value me? Is my life of just ordinary labor here in North Texas in some way significant in God's economy and kingdom? You see how significant he says it is? That even greater than John the Baptist are the least in the kingdom of God. And then you get, you'll see, verse 29 and 30, this parenthetical statement where Jesus is again reminding us that people received John and people rejected John. That the lowly sinners, tax collectors of the world have received John's baptism, which is the same way of repenting of their sins and coming to Jesus Christ. Yet the religious elites, they rejected God's purpose for themselves, having not been baptized by John. And to illustrate the problem with the religious people and their unbelief, Jesus begins to put these pictures together. Notice verse 32 as he compares the children of this generation to children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another. So kids, you've got to think about the scene. You're playing in modern-day circumstance. You're playing in the backyard with some friends. And you say, hey, let's play this game. And your friend says, no, that doesn't sound like too much fun. And you say, okay, let's play this other game. Ah, that doesn't sound like too much fun either. Uh, well, what about this one? Ah, I don't want to do that either. You know, I don't want to do anything that doesn't kind of conform to my own rules. And so he gives this proverb of sorts. Notice in verse 32, we played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not weep. And then in verse 33 and 34, I think he's explaining that proverb by saying this. John the Baptist came along, and he was preaching judgment. And you guys said, he's a demon-possessed preacher. Okay? Jesus comes along, and it's a ministry full of grace, joy, invitation, wooing to the sinners. It's, ah, he's just a gluntness drucker drunkard. Joy doesn't matter. A ministry of judgment doesn't matter. No matter the tone, no matter the subject, no matter where it comes from, the religious leaders will have nothing for it, Jesus says. So firm are they in their unbelief. And I wonder if that even may be true of some of you in here this morning. No matter who's speaking, no matter where they're speaking from, the truth of Jesus' identity 
you don't receive and you reject. Reminding us once again, isn't it, that a humble faith is the right response to who Jesus is. You know, I spend a fair amount of time each week, some of you may be this way, listening to audiobooks. Whenever I'm driving around the car, I'm listening to a book. Every afternoon run that I have, I'm listening to a book. And I tend to be one of those audiobook listeners that I stick really to just one, maybe two genres. And so often the stories bleed together, especially as I listen to like mystery detective uh, novels. They all kind of sound similar at some point. So on Tuesday of this week, I started listening to a book, and about 90 minutes in, I thought to myself, wow, sounds striking like another book I remember listening to last year. But I plowed on, and about 90 minutes later, as this would have been Wednesday, I realized, huh, it's familiar because I actually did listen to this book (laughs) last year. But I still forgot so much of the end of the story, I kind of wanted to keep going on through the book to remember how it actually came to its kind of thrilling conclusion. And if you've ever read a gospel, have you ever had a similar kind of experience? Huh. I've seen those points before. Jesus has all authority. Jesus is compassionate towards sinners. You can reject him or you can receive him. Over and over, what we're going to find in Luke's gospel is continually putting forth this very vibrant yet consistent picture of who Jesus is and what it means to respond to him And I wonder if you continually find it compelling. If it even causes you to keep reading with eagerness because of the amount of thrills that await you as the story continues. And so as we begin to close, I just want to put out before you just a couple applications, wonderful wrinkles, I think, in this text that we need to see that we might remember afresh the truth of who Jesus is and how we ought to receive him. So number one, a humble faith rests on Christ's word. A humble faith rests on Christ's word. Because there's something amazing that we can maybe miss in the story of the centurion in the first ten verses. And it's the truth that Christ's word is as powerful as Christ's presence. You know, you might even be in here this morning and find yourself in this place of physical need, emotional need, spiritual need, and you're wanting God to show up in your life. And maybe even that showing up is a longing for this kind of supernatural, extraordinary presence of God appearing in your life. And the centurion recognizes that his word is as powerful as his presence. He need only speak, and the deadly disease will stand Still, and we even know from the rest of the Bible that not only is God's word as powerful as his presence, but it is one way in which he is present with us, even now, that in our own meditation and reading on scripture, family worship, discipling of one another, coming together every Lord's Day, hearing the gospel proclaimed, reading it together, what do we find? Christ with us. And it is a powerful and perfect word on which our faith rests So a humble faith rests on Christ's word. And secondly, a humble faith displays Christ's glory. Look at the last verse in our text. He's saying the joyful ministry of myself you rejected, the judgment ministry of John you rejected, and he says yet, verse 35, wisdom is justified by all her children. 
Wisdom is justified. Wisdom in verse 30, or I think it harkens back to verse 30, this purpose of God, it's justified, it's declared right. A humble faith in response to who Jesus is is so powerful that it vindicates the truth of who God is. His wisdom in redeeming sinners through faith and repentance. So maybe you've got this little temptation, this this demon, if you will, on your shoulder throughout the week saying, hey, a humble faith is really not that big of a deal. We need works of power. Uh, We need works of strength to show who God is. And Jesus says, no, it's just a simple, humble faith that reveals God's wisdom. For what is a simple, humble faith but a resting upon Jesus Christ alone that points away from our unworthiness to His eternal and beautiful worthiness that rests on His power, not our strength, on His wisdom, not our knowledge. And the beauty in God's economy is that He calls Christians together into local churches. That's why even Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10 says, so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be displayed, vindicated, proven to the heavenly powers and authorities. So significant is a humble faith to the Christian life. So have you seen the truth of who Jesus is, the Savior who's amazed at a humble faith, moved by the needs of hurting sinners, and displeased by a continual rejection of who He is? Have you, have you seen that Christ? And are you responding to him with humility and confidence in faith? Let's pray together. Father, we I do thank you that you speak to us, that you are with us through your word and spirit. Uh, We confess that we are prone to rely on things in this world so often each and every day. Even resting on our own selves for wisdom and for power and ability. Uh, We confess that we often, in our pride, think so highly of ourselves. And so we, we pray that even by the Spirit you might move us this week to recognize again our unworthiness before you and the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Let us see something of his marveling at faith and compassion for the hurting, that we might come to him and be fed by him, that we might be nourished by his grace as we grow in faith. And we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.